Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. This is John Fitzgerald, and welcome to another edition of Continuum, the podcast series of the IBC. Today, our guest is Joe Urbany, professor at Notre Dame. Joe, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you, John. Appreciate the invitation. So in full disclosure, this is going to tell you how old I am. 19 years ago, I was introduced to Dr. Urbany when I went back to school to get my MBA. And and Joe, you and you got to think here, Jim Davis taught a class on marketing. It was like market dynamics and competitive analysis. And uh, for whatever reason, came into my mind and I uh, contacted you a month ago and asked if you'd be interested in being in a po- on the podcast and you you know, wholeheartedly agreed. So thank you. I, I truly no appreciate your time in doing this today. And I think our listeners are really going to benefit from understanding you and your background. So th- to kind of start, Joe, can you give us a little background like where you grew up, like what, what your background is and, and tell us about your education? Oh, sure. I grew up in, uh, did most of my growing up in Lima, Ohio, which was kind of by way of Pittsburgh where I was born and then uh, Connecticut. My dad was a corporate guy with the Westinghouse. And so that was a day when uh, the corporation moved you around. And uh, But we stuck in Lima. So from the age of five to 18, uh, we were there and, and uh, high school. And then there actually was a branch of Ohio State in Lima. And so uh, I was there my first year out of high school, uh, taking classes. And then we had uh, uh, and played baseball there. And, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was primarily, um, it was like a little extended high school. So, to, you know, to some degree, just in terms of socially, and the people there, but it was, uh, it was a great facility. And now it's just grown and expanded like crazy. Uh, and then uh, I spent a year at Wright State University in Dayton, uh, and I went there specifically to play baseball, uh, which I did, but got uh, to the end of that year. It was a great program and, and uh, a great coaching and stuff, but, but uh, realized that I was um, I felt like I needed to move on to the, ne- the next phase, and so I went to Ohio State and Columbus. And... Uh, I stayed there six years, all the way through. Um, ca- caught up on all the undergraduate stuff. I had to uh, change majors, uh, and ended up going to graduate school there all the way, uh, all the way through. So uh, eight years altogether um, at university, uh, and I also coincidentally, very first class I had as an under as a new undergrad at Ohio State in Columbus, I met. Uh, this girl who I'm married four years later <laughs> and who happens to be here in South Bend with me uh, to this day. You pulled her around with you. That's great. So what did you major in? What did you end up changing to and what did you major in? Well, I, you know, it's a, a really lucky at, at Wright State. They had this very interesting, um, I was always interested in psychology and it's what my original major was at Wright State. Uh, they had uh, first terms uh, lined up a statistics course with experimental design in uh, psychology. So I was taking some psychology courses and, and then you went right into the statistics course and they were uh, taught in parallel. So we, we would 
doing research uh, in the psychology class and uh, then doing the analysis via what we were learning in statistics and it just immediately a uh, great learning experience there and kind of charged up about that. But I ultimately found in some, when I was a sophomore at Wright State, uh, it's sort of a, a big phase of discovery, just thinking about psychology as a discipline. And, and, and you know, there's, there's, much about business that borrows from psychology, uh, but at the time, just being a, a, a pure psychologist uh, was not something I was uh, that I that I really wanted to pursue because I just have felt this need to to uh, I was attracted to a more applied discipline. And and um, when I went to Columbus the following year, I, I did move into the College of Business. It was rather painful. It was a very large school of business and. Uh, uh, I had to do a lot of catching up and getting into classes was a bit tough, but uh, switched to marketing. Uh, and, and, and just actually, in, in inspiration wise, uh, I believe, I think it was when I was a, a senior, my first uh, first quarter as a senior, I, I had a course on consumer behavior. And what was fascinating about that course was I, I was sort of guessing that, that marketing was a discipline that would, you know, bring in the formal study of of human beings as consumers. And uh, I had a course uh, by a new professor, Paul Menard, who had just come from Florida uh, and had been trained. One of his uh, mentors was Bill Wilkie, who was uh, uh, on the faculty at Notre Dame, but had been in Florida. And it was a course on consumer behavior with his very rigorous uh, walkthrough of uh, the current academic literature and research. Yeah, just uh, for you know, this is kind of nerdville, but uh, that's what really got me excited and passionate about uh, you know finishing up in the business school and then continuing uh, continuing on. Was your intent maybe not intent, but at what point did you realize you wanted to go to graduate school and immediately after continue it? And then was the PhD. I don't want to say simply, but a continuation of that. It absolutely was. You know, it's it's a little bit like you just follow your nose. I mean, and I was lucky enough to just be exposed to things that 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 kind of matched uh, and sparked interest in me. And, and uh, so I, after the course, I went to Paul and I said, "Hey, can I work for you?" And uh, I started doing some work with Paul. And uh, between um, Paul and a, a couple other professors I had, they actually encouraged me to go to graduate school. And the uh, the program in Ohio State did something unique. There was, I had a colleague of mine who was in the business school marketing major uh, named April Atwood, and they experimentally put us straight into the PhD program. And so I had this, you know, kind of a, quite a big advantage of having uh, uh, the, the chance to get into a program that was it was kind of a bit customized for us, and we uh, we both went in, we both um, got out, and uh, it was it was fascinating, but very supportive faculty. But really, was truly, uh, you know, I, I didn't look at many other opportunities. I didn't apply to other business schools. I just I felt like this was. Uh, the next thing I needed to do. And it was a comfortable space because I knew many of the faculty. I mean, graduate school was a totally different thing, but than undergrad, but, uh, it was, it, it was just, a, it was a, it was a good direction for me. It felt like, uh, 
uh, at the time. So uh, again, just following my nose, and then I got I got a stipend, so I felt like I was rich. You know, I felt like, oh my god, I'm getting whatever it was. You know, eight hundred bucks a month, and and uh, the in in contrast, we had other people coming into the PhD program who were, you know, left well-paying jobs and had families with two or three kids, and and just it was it was interesting for me to to get to work with a lot of uh, a, a lot of really smart people in that program but also to appreciate that uh, what i was um get, getting uh in my situation relative to others who had a lot more stuff on their plate when you finished and what did you do i mean did you always want to go into teaching and i realize it's much broader than simply teaching but was that always kind of your track you know the it's a little bit different today uh, because of, uh, of a lot of the te- technical tracks that the doctoral programs have. But for the most part, the you're trained in a PhD program to become a, an academic researcher. And so the, the path is uh, to, uh, then the goal is a faculty position uh, at a university, at a major research university. And which is of all the folks who were in the highest state program at the time, that's essentially what everybody did, that it, um, there wasn't, I can't think of anybody, maybe one, there was one, maybe one person who went into, uh, you know, the commercial world uh, and would do research or work for an agency or, or a, a government body. But that's it. I mean, the PhD program, a PhD program uh, in all disciplines, but, but certainly in business is to prepare you for uh to become an academic researcher and and to publish in uh, the academic journals. So when did you, is that what you initially did after earning your PhD was to get into marketing, consumer behavior type research? I did. I did. Uh, but we, I am in my, and Paul Menard, who was one of my advisors at the time, would have argued I went out too early, but um, I, I uh, got a job at the University of South Carolina. Uh, in after I was, so I was still not quite done with my dissertation. So I had to finish that up, uh, while I was uh, my first year, first semester in, in South Carolina. But, um, uh, that was, uh, incredibly fortunate for, for me for uh, a few reasons. We were there 10 years and all our kids were born in, uh, in Columbia. And the environment I went into there was, uh, I was the, I mean, I was 26. Uh, I, I had, was going into a department that, that had a very, very high ranking and, and its research productivity. Uh, had great leaders and great guys and a great, wonderful culture. So it was like I got, you know, I, I went there and I had, you know, seven, eight new big brothers uh, to uh, help, help me uh, become, uh, develop and become a good academic. So that and it's a, it was a wonderful culture. We we absolutely loved living in, in, in Colombia uh, for those years. What brought you to Notre Dame then? Well, you know, we I think we had we, when we moved down south, uh, and we and by the way, we still every year we we're back in South Carolina with a vacation at the at the beach at the more most recently at Isle of Palms, and we'll stop by Columbia when we can. So we just we loved South Carolina, but we we had uh, probably from the start, you know, I think we always thought we wanted to move back up closer to home. Uh, 
we had coincidentally i have a, a sister who who uh whose husband was in uh, he's a he's a very well-known cardiologist and now he was in he was at duke he moved to duke uh at some point so they were fairly close to us uh and then they moved to, to indianapolis uh, a couple years before we moved to Notre Dame, so we've always had a very close relationship with with the, their their family, and and that was a uh, Julie's family's from Columbus, and they're still there for the most part, uh, and and uh, we just want to get a little bit closer to home, and and also to a place uh, at, at time there were at times there were uh, uh, you know a public institution is a little bit more um, subject to the. To economic conditions and, and that kind of thing, and just just thinking in terms of uh, longer term uh, economically, we thought well, this would be a better fit. But there was I, I actually didn't even consider another university uh, at, uh, at all. I mean, this this was uh, a, a, a natural fit, I think, in that. And up and John, so I just. One other point, and so I'll, I'll pause here in a second, but the thing that uh, I learned as I explored Notre Dame, and I, I come up to present a paper uh, earlier on, and uh, but, but really found out about the aspirations of the university for the professional schools. And it was very, very clear that the university was making a serious investment in in the business school and in in uh, in the other professional schools, and that uh, that is something I have to say is just uh, was it was has been relentless part of it through the leadership here, but uh, we've just we've grown you know tremendously in in, uh, in the time since we've been here that as a university, both in terms of programs, faculty, research. Uh, recognition and status and, and um, facilities too. Joe, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your research? Because you, you still certainly do that today and and how your research kind of dovetails in with, with teaching. You know, the I, I've kind of straddled two different uh, domains when, because I, I started off really purely as a consumer behavior researcher and, and uh, did, did a dissertation about how People search for for prices uh, in uh, in an online environment, and uh, and how they uh, respond to uh, different uh, different conditions in the market in terms of how widely dispersed prices are, and, and what they know about. It. And and I found that really fascinating. And it was driven a lot not only by consumer behavior research and marketing, but also by economic. Uh, economic modeling of information in, in the marketplace. And the, the, the most interesting thing to me about that paradigm uh, from economics was the assumption that in markets you, you could explain uh, differences in prices, the fact that, that vendors of the same, suppliers of this exact same good would have different prices because buyers were uninformed. Buyers didn't have all the information. And so then the question becomes, well, how much do people search and, and why why, and, and what drives that? Uh, but the, the thing that I ultimately realized was that the, the assumption there was that buyers were 
not uninformed, but buyers didn't have all the information. And, and there were formal models of that. But, but sellers in those models were assumed to be perfectly informed. And what I ultimately realized was that that can't be true. Sellers cannot have all the information. Uh, and when you begin to look at uh, uh, the literature in, in, uh, in now, what's called behavioral economics and, and in psychology and so forth, that, that human beings um, are, are imperfect processors of information, either because they don't have exposure to it or they, uh, you know, they interpret it in ways that, that um, may not be entirely accurate. Uh, but, but so I began to just get more interested in really looking at, at managers and managerial um, decision making and, and how managers think in a competitive context, uh, how they balance competitive factors and co company factors and, and what they know about customers and their decision making. So uh, that was kind of a bad pattern. It was just this realization that, you know, the if there's information asymmetry is actually on both sides or in, or uncertainty it's actually on both sides of the market and uh it's it's just as interesting to study how managers are approaching decisions and searching for information uh as as consumers you brought up the whole aspect of like the managerial decision making and, and you mentioned the online shopping aspect and i'd love to get your thoughts on kind of this whole involvement probably over the last 20 years of, you know, that online shopping, how it's impacted consumers, and then factor in the, the advent of social media. And then we could probably have a whole different conversation, but I'll bring it up. The whole idea of artificial intelligence, where, where AI has impacted and where you think that's going to kind of draw us moving forward. Uh, so on, on, uh, that's a, that's a big yeah. I know, I know it is, and I, I should have uh, <laughs> cut it cut it up into three different parts. Sorry, there's there's three different courses right there, uh, or three different lectures for sure. It, one of the most interesting things that um, has happened in the last twenty years, and some of this research is uh, is almost twenty years old now. Uh, that when it's kind of the advent of the internet and and e commerce. That the, the general assumption is that these information issues that I made reference to, you know, the fact that that we as consumers are not completely informed about prices for any you know product we're, we're shopping for is a function of the fact that there are costs to search. It takes time and you got to, you know, you have to know the right sources and so forth. And, and in the late 90s, as e-commerce, you know, started to become a reality, the predictions from a, from um, kind of the economist perspective was that, uh, and, and even a commercial perspective was that this, you know, markets were now going to go to, to literally the pure, you know, economic concept of a single price for everything because information is now perfect via the internet. And what followed was. Uh, a series of studies in you know, between 2000 and 2008 that showed with with great um, showed robustly and with great consistency that there continued to be large di price dispersions for the exact same items. So, for example, books was one 
uh, one of the first categories studied. So for the same book across different cells, you actually would find very, very different prices. And it can, and it, it actually was very consistent with the, the earlier research, which had found that we, you know, we as, as, as consumers will look at two or three options, you know, and we'll kind of sequentially say, well, I'm going to go to the next option. And very often it doesn't seem it's not worth it. Right? Uh, and, and as a result, consumers, we still tend to uh, get focused early on particular options. And, and we, we don't, unlike the, the, what was assumed, we don't uh, navigate the whole web or use these aggregators, pricing, price search uh, uh, apps to, to find the very lowest price because largely, you know, essentially you're trying to find a match with your needs. And when the price is good enough, it's good enough. So there, the, the, that prediction of perfect information and one price uh, for every item is, uh, has been resoundingly rejected. Uh, and it comes back to our basic tendencies uh, as decision makers to have prior beliefs to, to come, you know, and sometimes have inertia around what we do and uh, to go to the same source for a solution and not take the time to expose um, ourselves to to uh, it, the full price distribution that we might find on the web. So uh, that, that has been, I, I think, a, a, an important um, finding. It's also, and there's a little, I won't go into great detail on this, but there's, uh, it's changed the perspective on me that's been, uh, that I have had, which is, you know, in my view, when you see price dispersion like that, it's not that it, it, it's a natural thing. It is. It is not um, the result of scheming or you know any any sort of uh, behavior uh, on the, on the seller side to, uh, to to try and extract. There's usually a reason. There's usually an explanation for those differences. Uh, uh, but the, more recently, in in uh, the, the, the mid to late 2000s and, and since there's been work on what's called obfuscation among sellers that shows and, and with the data that's now available in, in, uh, from the internet that, that there are particular seller practices that will, uh, you know, are, are, are specifically intended to uh, add cloudiness to, let's say, the pricing, uh, to the way fees are added, or uh, to to make it a little bit harder to get to the price that was you saw promised. And that part is that kind of realization. And uh, uh, it's some work um, actually initially came from Harvard. These researchers Gabay and, and uh, Leibson said uh, identified. Um, the fact that you actually could uh, uh, that the, the, the price levels um, might in fact be even resistant to more competition. In other words, the, the more competition you have, actually the obfuscation could get worse. Whereas a, a, an underlying principle in economics would suggest that more competition should drive the prices to be more similar and you know motivate more honest behavior among among sellers. So uh, at any rate, there, there are a 
you know, there's many, many, many implications of uh, online markets. It, it, interesting question is how does social media play into that? Uh, and and uh, I think, well, first of all, social media from a firm's perspective today, and then this is on the positive side, is a very, very important channel for uh, uh, introducing new innovations, for exposing people to uh, new new products and services to get, um, you know, to, to generate the awareness that is really needed to, um, to drive the sales of a product or service that's going to, you know, be in. And intended to be, uh, you know, a, a better solution for people who will resolve needs more effectively. Uh, there's no, there's no question that those trends are um, uh, really significant, and, and it's been like probably the last eight years, or something like 2015 or 2016, where the time we spend on our phones uh, began to exceed the time we spend watching. TV or being exposed to radio. So that now that's flip flopped everything. So the mobile, um, the mobile channel, social media, all of that is, has gotten much more attention, much greater investment, uh, uh over time. So they're there. And I think that is just going to continue to, uh, be the case. Uh, and it, it, you know, creates really interesting, New challenges for uh, how do you actually execute on that, but it also creates tremendous opportunity to better connect with customers and uh, and, and really understanding the needs out there and also the uh, the solutions that folks need uh, in the products and services that are sold. No, that's great. I, I appreciate your insights on that. I want to switch gears just slightly. And I want to talk about a program that you're involved with at Notre Dame called Tutor ND. And can you share with us just some background on the program and and how and why you're involved? Because you, you go back to your early days where sure. you, know, you were interested in psychology. I think there's a little thread from what I've read with psychology in, in Tutor ND. Yeah. Oh, no, there definitely is. But and and. My interest in schools goes back a long time. So we, uh, when I was associate dean here in the college, we started uh, sort of with a couple of uh, MBA students, a program called School Inc., which we, we had for running for 17, 18 years, and it, which involved uh, almost every year working with a single school and, and uh, volunteer programs around either reading or math. And, uh, and, and I think we, we had some impact uh, it, it, but but in a in a on a small scale, listen. Uh, so we, we kind of decided to to close down School Inc. At, um, when COVID hit, and in the meantime, we had uh, we had an initiative from the provost for new ideas, uh, asking for proposals for new ideas for kind of you know deeply important societal problems and issues, and and, and particularly anything related to. Uh, that had happened as a result of COVID. And this, this was not specifically uh, anything to do with COVID, except for the fact that, um, and uh, well, let me take that back. It, the program the proposal that came out was led by one of our, uh, or I'm sorry, one of the pro proposals that came out 
uh, in, in that provost program was led by Nicole McNeil, who's a, a faculty uh, professor in psychology here, who's very widely known uh, for her work in cognitive development and particularly with kids and, and math and how kids uh, learn math and, and think about math and so forth. Uh, Nicole had a group of about 20 people on this proposal, but it was largely a one of many proposals that was a response to, we're not hitting the scores. Uh, as a nation, our public schools are underperforming, in, particularly in math. So uh, we all know that this goes back to No Child Left Behind uh, over 20 years ago. But the focus on those uh, achievement of uh, children, and more importantly, the development of children of those uh, skill sets, which is uh, th that was already a problem, which was then quickly exacerbated by COVID. So Nicole's proposal ended up leading to uh, a program called Tutor ND, and Tutor ND is the exactly the right idea that needs to be everywhere. And it become, and it's really a question of uh, kind of organizational capacity. So Tutor ND is a program that is now in, I'm not sure how many schools, but, but a couple dozen schools, at least in, in the South Bend area that targets one-on-one -on -one tutoring for individual kids or, or pairs of kids. The foundation of the program is that the only materials that are used are evidence-based curricula that, that have gone through extensive testing and have shown to work really well. Uh, the, the program, and I, and I drew this out for Nicole because she was just not, uh, one of the things I think, um, at least last year, she was, uh, she was doing so much and she didn't understand quite why. And then I just showed her the organization sort of in a Michael Porter value chain picture and it's stunning how complex at this program a program like this at that scale to uh, is to be uh, effective because the way nicole has organized it is, is just really impressive with uh, uh first of all financially every tutor it's paid so there's not you, you couldn't possibly do what you need to do with uh, just a volunteer uh army uh, their their requirement is that uh, there are a couple days a week that they they tutor. They're hooked up with individual kids. Uh, they have to learn the um, the tutors have to learn the curriculum, the evidence based curriculum, and, and have to to go through program to develop mentoring and tutoring skills. Uh, there are also uh, leaders. There's a layer of leaders who who actually um, organize. Uh, groups of tutors there's transportation to the schools that has to be taken care of there's there's a fundraising to pay everybody uh there's the relationships with the curriculum vendors and so so it's like a mini corporation almost and uh the the one of the more interesting things too is is how responsive the program has been to the data because one of the things that nicole found very early was that once they started tutoring kids in math there was a barrier that popped up immediately, and that was that many of the kids for second and third grade, uh, second, third, and fourth grade, uh, didn't have the reading skills to get uh, all the word problems. Uh, so 
there's a total, there was a reboot and some aspects of the program and it shifted to reading uh, or stages where reading was first. And there was, um, uh, kids had to get to a certain level of proficiency to get, to get to the math program. A uh, long and short of it is the, the, the program itself is, you know, it's very carefully measured and uh, instrumental throughout. Uh, it's just shown tremendous impact on the kids. The kids are out, uh, in, in, the, in schools, when, when the kids regularly uh, are exposed to uh, either volunteers or, or you know, tutors and from university, students from university uh, as, as uh, tutors, there's, there's just sort of a general kind of cultural benefit to them or, or, or just kind of this big person uh, who I like is coming to see me. And, and that's, you know, that's a very positive thing. But on top of that, the t- using the evidence-based curricula is, is very powerful. And, and it's, it's really interesting to see uh, the impact. Uh, and I haven't seen the latest data, but, but the numbers just jump off the chart when, when you look at pre and post scores for these kids on, on the, the standardized uh, testing. And uh, the, the one thing I, one thing I've always observed, John, is that, is that when you go into the classrooms uh, and it doesn't matter what school, uh, what, what private public, what uh, p- poor school, you know, not so poor school, there are just, there's a level of brilliance among uh, kids that, is, is there for them to develop. I mean, there, there are just so many kids who have uh, uh, in, in just instinctual um, insight about the world. Very, this is great emotional intelligence among, uh, among many. The, many times they're dealing with things outside of school that are, that are, are really challenging. So the, the impact, uh, it requires one-on-one tutoring and it requires consistent tutoring and it requires the use of uh, stuff that works and uh, that's what this program combines uh, I didn't mean to go on that long but I, I, I could go on longer it's it's a very very impressive program. No, no and that that's great and that kind of leads to a, a, a question I have in that if you have students and, and whether they're in the, the tutor ND program or a class that you're teaching or just in general and and they want to go, you know, make this big impactful change in the world, and have no idea where to start. What would you tell them? So this would be like, let's say, recent graduates, or what? Well, yeah, maybe say, just say recent graduates. You know, I, I think the thing that they they should do that you really have to do is to as quickly as you can get get out and work with an organization, get out and volunteer, uh, f- figure out what you're most passionate about. What are the, what are the problems in society you're most interested in? And, and then identify the, uh, organizations that, that work on those problems and, and, and go volunteer. There's, there's, uh, and, and now in fact, there are, there are, uh, and depending upon the city that you're in, there are, uh, websites and apps that that actually provide uh, a service to match up your interests to 
organizations who have needs. So there's uh, one is called, it's been around for um, over 10 years called Catch a Fire. And it's, it's just a really, really interesting organization that, uh, for, particularly for business students that match up business skills with volunteer, with, with or nonprofit organizations and on particular projects that they, they go a long way to uh, track the results. So they have something like, you know, over that time, $250 million in impact and then let's say cost savings for nonprofits. And that's one way organizationally to see how a nonprofit works, how, uh, how, how nonprofits can be improved and, and to actually participate in that. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there are other, uh, there are other websites or apps that, that connect you to specific volunteer opportunities where you might go volunteer for an organization. There's one called volunteer match that, that, uh, is, illustrates uh, that where, where, again, you go in and, uh, uh, they'll help you find a place you can volunteer. LinkedIn has the same thing. Well, if you go on LinkedIn, they, they'll tell you there are X number of volunteer opportunities in uh, in South Bend or in in Chicago. And uh, I, I do. I really think that that uh, you got to go got to work from the ground up when you have that interest or that passion. Uh, and the best thing to do is get out there as quickly as you can and work with the organization or work with the organization's clients. Uh, to, to really understand what they're doing and to really understand the problems that, that they're addressing in society. I want to use that as a stepping point, Joe, to, to talk about the IBC. Um, you know, certainly the, the IBC, the Alumni Association of the SIBC, SIBC has chapters at Notre Dame, uh, University of San Diego, and Benedictine College. Um, and, and our mission, very similar to the SIBC mission, is that we want to create a world where the business community acts as a principled force for the common good globally. And, and I was wondering if you could share with us your thoughts on our mission. You know, I think, uh, John, one of the things that um, comes to me as a, as before I address the mission that, is that uh, it, I, I do see, you do, I do connect with and, and hear from alumni time to time about their passion to work for um, you know, some in some capacity and on uh, a, a project of business for good or, or passionate about that. And uh, that's one of the things that's interesting about the IBC or the SIBC is, is whether or not there's a way to integrate alumni uh, there. Some people, so in other words, to keep the, those connections going. I know that's that's uh, your uh, focus here. It, it, yeah, uh, on, on specific projects, particularly as, as alumni become experienced in the, in the work that they do. But, I, I, you know, I think that this is a mission that's very much aligned with the, the mission of the Mendoza College of Business. And that is, you know, doing business for good or creating uh, a, a greater good. And I think the, the one thing that's important in that is is to is not to limit it to, let's say, things or projects that just seem to be uh, for social causes. Because uh, on a fundamental basis, I think that, uh, you know, a business that, I think every business is important in the social good and for social welfare. Every business that is, uh, you know, em employing people 
every business that's creating value for its customers and creating value and jobs for its partners and distributors. And so, I mean, to me, fundamentally, that's at the core of uh, why, at the core of why business exists and and, and uh, the social good that, that happens in a business. Uh, at the same time, I think that there, that how you expand from that is is to think about uh, and and to encourage investment in businesses that that do focus themselves on uh, societal problems and, and, and on problems in society and in and, and we can or the needs in society that, that can be defined along many many different uh, dimensions. Uh, whether it's it's healthcare, whether it's housing, uh, whether it's education, there there are so many uh, different opportunities, and and we have. Uh, it's interesting to see how universities uh, have the opportunity to connect with, connect their resources, their students, their graduates, and encourage uh, those students to to pursue some of those bigger problems and. And uh, I think the, I think the the SIBC and, and as as an organization is just it, it's got all the right uh, the right motivation and drive behind. It. I think this is exactly when one of your earlier questions or one of your questions that you sent me was what what is it what happens when you go to college and yeah. and how do people develop. Uh, you know, in a personal way as well as in an intellectual way, and um, in some cases maybe in a spiritual way. But I think organizations like SIBC are a really good example of how I would answer that question. And that is, you, you you develop by virtue of the fact that you get exposed to lots of different points of view. You get exposed to to uh, ideas, people functions, organizations, problems that you, that you just were never aware of as, uh, you know, maybe as a kid coming up. And those are, those are really, you know, it can be transformational um, experiences as, uh, as you develop. And so I, I think that at, at its core, what a university does is, is uh, it's a driver of thinking of new ideas uh, and, and, uh, breadth of thinking and and that's the powerful thing about it and i think when you have something that uh as focused as sibc on on uh, bringing students together around these sorts of uh, awareness of uh uh global issues uh concerns um problems in society it's it's a very very powerful thing and and so i think the the university gets linked to that but but in terms of business for good is uh, the potential that there's a few students in any given class who will get linked to a cause and what they decide to devote their professional life to. And, uh, and they will have an impact over time because of that. So it's, it, it then is not just about uh, getting, you know, the job at P and G and making brand manager by, you know, thirty-one right. and uh, going on to the next, the next job and the next job. Uh, it's a, it's a, there's a there's a larger mission behind it. So I, I think that that's I think it's phenomenal. Great insight, thank you. 
Um, I, I want to switch. I want to talk a little bit about two more topics. One, leadership. Is there a person on the professional side and the personal side, or people, I should say, who have had just, in your view, just a great influence on you in your career and your life? You know, I, you know let me go chronologically. I, I, one uh, faculty, one uh, Ohio State um, faculty member who was on my dissertation committee and had a big uh, impact on me and uh, did many papers with us, Peter Dixon, who's now at Florida International. And Peter was an interesting guy because he was a very, from New Zealand. He's a rugby uh, fanatic, meaning he played at a very high level in New Zealand, very, um, uh, very aggressive intellectually. And I learned a ton uh, from Peter about, uh, you know, about good scholarship and, and about um, uh, being productive. Uh, then when I went to South Carolina, again, very fortunate to be with a group that was very highly ranked in terms of research productivity and, and uh, Terry Shimp there since uh, and both of these guys have since retired but Terry Shimp uh, was you know not only you know in, intellectually and, and how professional development and that kind of thing was just just uh, personally was um, a very big influence on me Bill Bearden was another uh, another colleague there that was uh, that, that helped me a lot guided me you know kicked me in the butt when and, and uh, I needed it and uh, again, it was like I, I had big brothers there. When when I came to uh, Notre Dame, I guess I guess I would I started to think about leadership in a in a different way when I got into administration. And you know, one person who had a, a tremendous impact here in taking us from one level up to a, a very different level was uh, Carolyn Wu, who was a, the dean here. She would have been the dean when you were in the program. Yes. And uh, Carolyn and I didn't see eye to eye on on everything in terms of um, appro approaches, I guess, maybe to leadership. But she she was uh, just she had tremendous passion, had tremendous vision, uh, always knew what the next thing was, was was very informed. Uh, so she was the smartest person, literally the smartest person in the room. But she's also had just a great deal of compassion and uh, uh, what we really cared about people. And she jumped us up in terms of uh, our resource base, in terms of our the, the strength of our faculties, in, in, you know, exponentially. Uh, and then laid a foundation for what's happened since. So Carolyn was was uh, a very important person around here. And then, you know, I I know you'll remember Leo Burke who was our uh, an associate dean for executive education. And yeah. Leo was such an interesting guy just to uh, see him because he was a business guy. He was from Motorola. He had had a career at Motorola. He left. Right. Uh, and, and this was Carolyn's skill set was recruiting great people. So Carolyn recruited him away. He was president of Motorola University. And Leo was really unique in my mind of people I've come across in uh, in this world in that he was a, uh, an accomplished practitioner, but he was a, he was a, a great academic thinker as well. He was an intellectual and, and really almost uh, uh, even, even uh, he would have been an even better um, faculty member if he'd been here longer term. So you, so the integral leadership program was uh, 
essentially his design. And, and that program became uh, required. And I, I think you guys would have been exposed to that, that program uh, about it became the very first. Yes. Uh, yes. First program in uh, first week or two of the of the executive MBA program and was very powerful over the years in, in terms of helping people to step back and and uh, look at their lives in a, in a very balanced way. Look, not, not only work life, but uh, personal relationships and health and spirituality and it, it just a, a really um, a brilliant program that, that ended up. It, it became uh, a. a Common, or not common, a standard, I guess I would say, in our in our executive programs um, product portfolio. And so there was a there was not only an executive MBA version of it, there was a week long program that um, was was a separate standalone uh, program that, that for which folks were recruited all from all over the world to come in, uh, and and that was very successful. And and then it actually got into our MBA program. So, you know, we, we now continue to have something like that. Uh, so Leo was just a great leader, not, not only in his, those contributions, but also in the way he, he, he managed uh, people. It, it just a very effective guy. It's a guy you'd like to be around. And then that, that's kind of a common thing around here. At, 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 in this community, this, at this university is that uh, you're, you're lucky enough to be uh, have people here who, uh, you know, you just like to hang out with. And, and not only because of common interest, but because of the inspiration, you know, the inspiration you get from them. That's great to know. I mean, it, it, I mean, the same from our perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and, and again, that's part of the, um, the, the, the students coming in. That's part of that is what uh, the, you know, a payoff from being at Notre Dame and, you know, many all universities are like this. Uh, I happen to like this university a lot, but, but it's the, the, the folks you get exposed to. It's not just that you get exposed to new ideas. It's that you get exposed to impressive people doing really impressive things. And uh, I think all of those folks I mentioned fit in that category. So Joe, my, my last question is really more personal. So what does a college professor do in the summer? I realize there might be a summer class that you're teaching, but I mean, bigger picture, are you ever able to just kind of, you know, kick back and unwind? What do you do? You have, uh, the summer is is an important time to get things done, whether you're planning for new classes or that's the time when you can get a lot of, uh, a lot of work done on, on research and writing papers, which is, which is a a challenge um, because of the, the focus that it takes. So you get in a, in a, in this stream of thought about teaching a class. And, and sometimes it's hard to just jump over to working on this paper, which takes you three hours to get back into. But during the summer, you have an opportunity to, to do that. I do, I teach um, our master's non, a nonprofit program during the summer, uh, a two week course. And uh, then I've been, the last couple of years, I've done uh, some work with Cristo Ray, um, uh, the, the corporate uh, Cristo Ray, which is a high, high school, yeah, uh, well, you're well aware of in Chicago, and then now it's a national, um, yes, uh, a, a national network of high schools. Uh, and then we have the, the last, um, since 2017, 
we we now really officially always blocked out a week or two for vacation. So we'll go to uh, to South Carolina. We, we will. I think we will always go to South Carolina, and we were able to get uh, our family all together there, and so it's fun. Uh, it's a great deal of fun, and my sister's family as well. So we do this big joint vacation. So. Uh, but then we also, I get to, uh, I mentioned to you um, in an email that I, I get to uh, play baseball during the summer too. We have, uh, we have a, a league yes. here that was started well before I started playing, um, I, th- I think probably 10 years ago, uh, called the Sappy Moffat League. And, and it's a great name for a league. Sappy Moffat was a minor league player that has this a great story behind him. He was a very, very um, accomplished pitcher and had played in the minors for this is in the early uh, 20th century, so early 1900s, and was not. Um, he, he was about to get called up to the majors when his wife uh, intervened and, and said, "No, you got to come back to the farm because we have all these children here, and I can't do everything uh, alone." So he never did. I don't think he made it to the majors, but he was he was a well-known uh, player at the time, and his his family. Had, Actually, his descendants have connected with the league uh, over the past couple of years and have come and represented the family. But nice. uh, Matthew Inslee is the chief instigator. Matthew is just a wonderful, wonderful guy who kind of organized an initial baseball game 10 years ago. And the guys who started playing were um, said, hey, let's play again. And then they found out more guys wanted to play. And uh, we have a team that's we're called the Porters. We're, we're affiliated with St. Joseph Parish. And uh, we started in 2018, I think, 2017. And now there are 10 teams. Um, the age range is probably, I mean, of, of the regular players, probably, you know, 25 to uh, me. <laughs> and, and, uh, we, although actually last year we had uh, R.J. Jones, one of uh, uh, Jaden, his son played right field for us. Jaden's 16. Good player, too. Yeah, we should, uh, so we, you know, it's just it's just tremendous fun and great spirit in the league. And Matthew is, is actually a, a former pastor, now farmer, and he has done all of the leadership of uh, the new project for uh, Foundry Field uh, and just put in a tremendous investment that, that, that field, uh, which is a, a, a construction of a, a, a field that is, was originally intended for the play of the league and now has grown into a, a, a very big community based, uh, I guess I would say project uh, that, that, that is designed to uh, celebrate the, the history of baseball in South Bend, the connection to, uh, industry and the old industrial league. So Foundry Field is is, is named after uh, a foundry team uh, that uh, w- that participated in in, uh, in the industrial leagues uh, way back uh, when. Uh, a, lar- a team that was largely uh, made up of black players that got got was tremendously good uh, and didn't always get to play. Um, in all of the competitions, uh, but there and this tremendous unknown history behind all of this, and in, uh, in uh, that our folks, uh, our historians at Notre Dame, uh, are, are are working on, and 
the field itself is uh, going to be a tremendous project and and resource for the community. So the old guys get to play on on Sunday, but it's there's a, a vision of uh, uh, active use of the of the field for leagues and 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 you know casual play by uh, the whole neighborhood and. Uh, I think we're all really excited about that project. That that's fantastic. I love the involvement of it that, you know, came from just a bunch of guys who wanted to go out and play a game to something that's gonna better the community. That's fantastic. Joe, I just wanted to say thank you. Um I, I want to be respectful of your time. This was great. I'm gonna I wanna do a part two because probably half the questions I have I didn't even get to. Um and plus I want to talk about kind of that, that just means I talk too much, John. No, no, not at all. And I want to talk about like the whole the, the, the future of like marketing from a consumer behavior standpoint and all the different influences. So if uh, if I can be bold enough to say maybe in a year to, to kind of recirculate and do part two, I sure. would love that. Yeah, no, that sounds good. That's for uh, We can talk briefly here after we sign off. That's fine. But thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I wish you the continued success with, with work and family and baseball. Thanks very much, John. Best to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Continuum. Please leave us a five-star rating and share Continuum with your colleagues and friends. We need your help in gaining new listeners and growing our following. And for more information on the IBC, visit our website, ribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C.com. Have a great day.